Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. My name is Harold Nickel. You know, nothing succeeds like success. And one of the ways to recognize success is to know the signals or signs that you and your agile transformation are flirting with disaster. There are several of these that we're going to ask Ren Melberg about today on the podcast. And Ren, there are lots of ways for an agile transformation to get torpedoed. But what would you say is the number one absolute lockdown guaranteed way to fail on an epic scale? The the absolute one that we see all the time is lack of executive sponsorship and leadership. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say that they think this is important because of the visibility, and that's not really what it is. When we do root cause analysis, what it is is it really requires a C-suite member to do the level of investment and approve approve the level of investment that's necessary for an agile transformation. So really, that level of investment in terms of time and money. Mm-hmm. And without that you know, investment, the agile transformation isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And without a C-suite person being engaged, it's not going to happen. So when we think of when I ask potential clients is, would you invest a million dollars for your company, Uh delegate it, and then walk away and not pay attention? And they would say, no, absolutely not. Right. And and I know this because you know I've worked for the CEO of the largest bank in the United States, and Uh I can tell you, even though they're in the multi billions and have trillion dollars in transactions, he would never invest a million dollars and then walk away and not pay attention. Yeah, right? I'll bet. A lot can happen, good or bad, with a million dollars in your company. Mm-hmm. And most of us aren't even on that level. Most of us, a million dollars is anywhere between 10 and 1% of our uh, our budgets. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a huge portion. You, you would never give that to a supervisor or manager, someone in middle management, and then walk away. Right. But for some reason, that happens a lot with transformations, specifically agile transformations. And then I get asked, and, and my peers get asked, well, why did it fail? Mm-hmm. And we have to say to that C-suite executive, or sometimes executive, because I can't tell you how many times I've been in the room with a CFO, the CIO, and the CEO, and they're like, Rin, why did this fail before? Right. Well, how engaged were you? Mm-hmm. Well, what do you mean? We approved it. Well, is that, is that all you did? Did you do monthly emails? Did you talk about it in every single town hall? Mm-hmm. Did you change your behaviors? And I get no, no, no. Right. And I go, right. well, that's why I failed. Yeah. And or that's you, why you struggled. <laughs> or didn't succeed. Because let's be honest, in the C-suite, you can have one, you can do 90% of it could be correct and 10% didn't work out and they're going to f- focus on the 10%. Oh, Right? So absolutely. 10% they'll bring me into. Unfortunately, in these situations where we have uh, a lack of executive sponsorship and engagement, and the reason mm-hmm. why I use engagement, because that's an active word, mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, it's not 90% success, 10% failure. It's usually 10% success, 90% failure. Oh, yeah. 
And and they're like, we need, we want to flip that around. We need the failure to be ninety percent. And it's like, okay, let me tell you what you need, what you and the C suite need to do differently to make that happen. Yeah, I I think that's um, a very good summation. And you you said that it doesn't have necessarily to do with with visibility. With I can lay my eyes on the the leadership. Um, that there is a lot more to it than that. Um, and I think I know the answer, but when you know when the leaders aren't there, when because they just can't be around or engaged, you know, all of the time. What does an agile coach do with the disruptive influencers when those senior leaders are not looking or not engaged? That's a really tough question, and a lot of it has to do with the differences in a coach. Mm-hmm. So if you brought in an agile coach who honestly is more of a, a contractor staff augmentation, like you got them from one of those staff aug firms, mm-hmm. um, they're not going to do much of anything. Mm-hmm. They're going to try and sell the transformation to you, your middle management, um, but they're probably not going to be that successful unless oh. they happen to be you you know, a really skilled salesperson, which means they're in the wrong role. They can make a lot more money and do a lot more good if they're in sales than if they're an agile coach. Um, If you hire a management consulting firm, so you hire someone who's a true management consultant, and the differentiator often is they will come in and they will look you in the eye and tell you when you're screwing up. Uh Okay? They will speak truth to power. Yes. That that management consulting firm will go to the executives and say, dudes, <laughs> this is it. <laughs> we need you to step up here and give them specifics. And I've been in that situation mm-hmm. where I said, this is what I need you to do. I need you to write this email and I need you to make sure it has these key messages. I will draft the email for you. I've done mm-hmm. that. I have written executive emails for them. And I need you to send it out on this day, and I need we going to cascade it through your organization. So the CEO sends it on Monday. Mm -hmm. The CIO does a cascading email on Tuesday to their organization. You know, we do we put together a serious plan. I want you to talk about this, and here is, and even specifics on leadership behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, I've I've had to pull C-suite folks aside and say, I understand that in a traditional world, this is what you'd be asking for, or this is how you'd be asking for it, or, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about status reports. Let's talk about what governance is in an agile environment. Let's talk about what leadership is. Let's talk about some different ways of asking the questions so that the people that you're asking are the ones developing the mastery. Uh-huh. and the expertise. And you're getting the best out of the people right below you in your organization. Um, all of that is best done through one-on-one coaching, uh-huh. by the way, uh-huh. um, that regardless of what level someone is in the organization. Um, but, you know, that also, I hope, highlights the difference in the types of agile coaches because, you know, if you get someone from a staff log firm, they're not going to have the skills and the knowledge or even the backing from their firm mm-hmm. to push back on the C-suite and say, hey, we need you to do things differently, and this is what we need. Yeah, yeah. 
it's um, always from the top or not, it sounds like. But you mentioned... No, no, just want to cut you off there. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No. Sorry. Right. Uh, and we've talked about this before with Agile Transformations. The best ones, the most successful ones, are bottoms up and top down at the same time. Okay. But the bottoms up is rarely going to screw up the top-down portion of the transformation. Mm -hmm. The top-down can completely screw up and wipe out the bottoms-up part of the top transformation. So that's, that's why I talk about the importance of executive leadership and engagement because that is, they can do the greatest amount of uh, damage, if you will, to the transformation. Where the, the bottoms up, those individual agile teams and the individuals on those individual agile teams, their span of control and influence is much smaller. So if you have one team, for instance, mm -hmm. that isn't successful, they're not gonna, they're not likely to disrupt the entire organization. But you have one C-suite executive who's not on board, mm -hmm. they can completely disrupt your agile transformation. Well, yeah, I do, and I'm I'm glad you corrected me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you mentioned um, outside outside coaches, and one of the criticisms of Agile is that it's really by and for consultants, or that it's just the latest fad. And since fads are easy, I can learn this on my own, or that's kind of how the thinking. Goes. So is it just penny wise and dollar foolish to try and, and self-teach and self-direct Agile? Can that even be done? Yeah, I, I will always leave the possibility because everything's possible. Mm -hmm. It's just no one's seen it yet. Okay. <laughs> no one's seen an organization um, that has been able to self-teach and self-direct. Mm-hmm. Um, an agile transformation, um, especially to get the agile outcomes that are promised. Um, so the thing with agile is we say it's simple, but it's not easy. Right. Okay. And that's one of the things I really respect about our community is we're very honest and we're very transparent. Mm -hmm. Agile is not easy. It is not easy transforming to an agile company right. it is a simple model and there's a lot of it that human beings are respond to intuitively mm -hmm. because it's designed for human beings mm -hmm. it's not designed for machines it's designed for people sure but that doesn't make it easy no. and especially when you're trying to go from one model to an agile model it's it's very very difficult. So while um, it is simple, it isn't easy. Mm -hmm. And one of the analogies that we've talked about before is you wouldn't do your own heart surgery, right? No, never. <laughs> no. What you would do is you would hire someone to do the surgery for you. And what I've worked with clients, and you know there there are some who will hire staff augmentation firms to bring in some coaches and they kind of wade into their transformation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and this is another way you know a management consulting firm is different because a management consulting firm will come in and say, okay, our job is to transfer what we know to your people. Uh-huh. And they'll even give you a timeline. You need to tell me who those people are in, you know, 30 days or whatever. It's usually fairly short. Uh-huh. And we want to be out of here in six months and go to the next client. And you don't need us anymore. We're going to work ourselves out of a job. Yeah. That's another way you know you're working with a management consultant because mm-hmm. they will be upfront with you. <laughs> yeah. My job, and I am upfront with my clients. I will be mm-hmm. here for six months. Right. That's all you're going to get, okay, unless something untoward happens. But six months, and that should be your plan, and then I'm out of here. And part of what I'll work with them on is either developing their employee base mm-hmm. to know what I know mm-hmm. or um, a few more than a few times, helping them hire in those experts so they're in their employee base. Because if you don't have the expertise in your employee base, then mm. you're going to have, remember, we've, we haven't talked about it in a long time, but agile degradation. Yeah. I leave and I come back in a year, and your agile has really degraded, and you're doing scrum or fall or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> your agile behaviors have really, you've reverted to some waterfall practices. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what you should be kind of looking for. And oftentimes, depending on the size of the organization, it's a combination. There'll be employees that I'm working with to become agile experts and we'll hire in a few. There's other organizations that I've worked with where, and these are the ones who've been most successful, by the way, mm-hmm. the ones that hire in a C-suite person who is the Agile expert in the company who owns the Agile transformation. Um, One of my favorite job titles for that is Chief Future Officer. Oh, wow. Uh, I love that title. But uh, it's for a major financial services firm, and that person not only has the Agile transformation, but they also have all of Mm R&D, which makes perfect sense. They're so... Perfectly aligned. Um, and so what a fantastic title, Chief Future Officer. It's um, pretty cool. And, and they're known for having the most extensive Agile transformation. They happen to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they went full on out of the box safe. And now, you know, as every organization, you go through continuous improvement. And, but it's mm-hmm. still safe because they're still staying to the safe values. It just happens to be what works best for them. Right. Um, and as far as when we look at the outer numbers of why we do Agile, we talk about the 45-plus improvement in your quality. They've exceeded that. Mm-hmm. When we look at their time to market, they've exceeded that. They've beaten their competitors to market on multiple new um, financial products mm-hmm. and beating them by months and in some cases more than a year. That's significant. Awesome. Um, and their improved capitalization and overall financial um, performance is, is off the charts. Because remember, Agile has a very different accounting treatment mm-hmm. than traditional project management. So mm-hmm. again, this is why you need the C-suite involved. Because those are the guys, you know. Yep. And I'm from the Midwest, so guys is male and female. Absolutely. Those are the people <laughs> the, the folks. Who, who really understand the importance of capitalization and why agile accounting treatments are different, why they're a huge benefit to 
an organization, um, regardless of what type of organization you are, except for governmental, because governmental doesn't care about capitalization. But if you're a nonprofit, you're privately owned, you're a publicly traded, capitalization is very meaningful. Right. You and and that's another benefit of having these outside resources who can come in, share with you what they learn from other companies, mm-hmm. so you don't have to make those mistakes. You can learn from other people's mistakes and their successes. Huge yeah, benefit. yeah. If you're paying attention, you you can learn from both the good and the bad. Let's right. let's though peel that onion a little bit more. Um, because I can remember when the internet first became a, a thing for business, I had people tell me that they had a high school kid who lived down the street who could build us a website or build a website for the company. And this was a, a good size outfit. It wasn't a mom and pop storefront, but even then, you know, 20 years ago, it seemed like a silly idea. Is there an agile equivalent or an agile version of the high school kid down the street who provides inexpensive expertise to the to the dollar foolish. Oh, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, and it's really the staff augmentation firms. So, okay. uh, you know, at the, at the risk of being apolitical, mm-hmm. um, a rule of thumb is: if you're looking for someone to really help with your agile transformation, you don't go to the same people that you hired. Um, you know, your administrative um, help or your um, QA folks or, you know, you just don't. Um, Your, the management consulting skills and the investment and education and time and study and practice, Mm -hmm. so much different than staff Yeah. And staff and the recruiting that happens, all the infrastructure between management consulting firms and staff org firms is radically different. Mm-hmm. Um, the SOWs are different. I mean, everything about them is very different. And and I think part of it, what happens is it's dollar foolish in a couple of ways. One is sometimes companies don't want to go through the process of bringing on a new vendor relationship. Mm-hmm. Right. And But more often than not, and there's a huge company major uh, healthcare insurance company um, that wants to pay $40 an hour below market for their agile coaches. Wow. That is definitely in your, you know, (laughs) dollar foolish example, right? Guess what? And then they get mad and they are getting mad. I keep Mm -hmm. hearing from them and they're only going to staff og firms for these coaches. One. They want senior level coaches, but and I'm taking the low number. Mm-hmm. They're actually paying between forty and sixty dollars less an hour. It's wow. almost half what the market rate is um, for coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, these are team level coaches, so you don't even want to know what their program and enterprise level coach rates are because they're even worse. Um, and they're mad because they're not getting the caliber of people that they want. Well, of course not. Because yeah. those same people can literally go five miles away mm-hmm. and make almost twice. So why would it yeah. work for you? Because yeah. you're telling them, 
the coaches, remember these are agile folks, and you know they're gonna they're always taking an economic view. Uh-huh. Remember that's one of our principles. Right. And so they're gonna go, okay, that these people value me and my expertise and my contributions enough to pay me market. Uh-huh. You clearly don't value me. Oh well, yeah. Because you want to pay almost half market. Mm-hmm. Why would I go work for somebody who doesn't value me? Well, that's a good point. And at the right? same time, yeah, absolutely. You're and- destroying purpose. So the th- three things agile workers are looking for, purpose, autonomy, mastery. Mm-hmm. So when you're not willing to pay a market, you're undermining their purpose. Mm-hmm. You're also devaluing their mastery. Oh, yeah. So what are the chances that that person's going to have any autonomy in your work environment and continue to work on their mastery? Absolutely not. They know that. They're not stupid. Right. So they're going to go, bye. And what you're going to get instead are people who are going to take those roles who are just getting into it, who can sell themselves enough to look like they're senior folks. Mm-hmm. They're really not. So they're going to come into your environment. They're going to use you to build up their resume, and then they're going to split. And they're probably only going to be there two or three months because now they've got what they need to go five miles away and double their income and have purpose Mm -hmm. and mastery and have a high likelihood that they'll get autonomy. Yeah, it's um, to your your heart surgery. We don't shop for heart surgeons based on price, and it's almost – always the case that you're going to get what you pay for, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one of my laws of the universe, right? A book Absolutely, that I yeah. Threatened to write, but probably never will. Um, and, we, and we get the world we <laughs> pay for, right? of the universe. Yeah. You always get what you pay for. Um, and one of the things that I counsel executives on, because I understand they have um, substantive uh, financial constraints. No matter what's going on with the market, even when it's great and it's growing and it's wonderful, we still have financial constraints. Right. Money is not infinite. No. And so they have to be smart about it. But what I ask them to do is take an economic view. Mm-hmm. Not just the cost view, because the cost is only half of the equation. And usually when they're looking at the cost, they're only looking at a portion of the cost. They're looking at the dollar rate. They're not looking at all the costs around that. So the more often that you have to replace these consultants or these contractors, let's be honest, mm-hmm. they're contractors, that costs your organization. The yeah. more often that you are bringing in, you know, people who don't have the expertise and the knowledge that you need, that costs your organization. Yeah. If you right. do the math, it is less expensive to pay more for someone who knows what they're doing and is willing to commit to your organization and add value to your organization than it is to always be looking at the price tag. So I remember Oprah Winfrey on her show, they did a a study and they did shoes. Mm -hmm. Okay? (laughs) Cheap, Cheap and expensive shoes versus quality shoes. And and I always keep this in mind. The cheap shoes usually last a few months, mm-hmm. and the inexpensive shoes last you years. Right. So the total cost winds up, you buy one pair of good shoes, they're going to last you for years, 
you know, in in the example they gave was actually they said two years is usually the breaking point is your break even point, two years versus that you're going to have to buy four or five pairs of the cheap shoes in that same two year time period. Yeah, that's right. It's the same kind of model. You can pay once and you can pay really well and get a great return and a great value and a great return on your investment and value. Or you can just keep churning through the cheap shoe. Yeah, that's compelling math right there. Um, right. Yeah, the, and the marketplace, from where I sit, kind of requires the, go the freedom and empowerment that allows people to focus on customer-oriented product outcomes, and Agile mm-hmm. delivers those. In a traditional top-down company with a rigid chain of command and a bureaucracy, they put processes and procedures first and customers, employees second, if not lower. So the entire culture is going to have to change at a company if they really want to become truly agile, right? Isn't that right? Absolutely. And um, I noticed they use bureaucracy. Um, Bureaucracy is actually what we call ineffective or poor governance. Okay. Right? If it starts to look bureaucratic or command and control, then it's poor governance. Um, governance in, in especially agile government governance always starts with the why. Why are we doing this? Why do we care? Why is this important? Mm-hmm. And it's not about checking off boxes or filling out documents and paperwork. You know, the purest form of agile Governance is working software right? or working product, you know, whatever it is that we're working on, right? And when do we see that? Every two weeks in the sprint demo. Mm -hmm. Powerful, powerful stuff, right? And and the most um, relevant governance to everybody, including your outside regulators, just going to be really honest with you, Mm -hmm. but especially with your customers. And... That demo is is so powerful, and that's why we do it. Mm-hmm. And that's why I have my clients record it. What would you rather look at? And you know, is a stat, do you want to see a status report, like a PowerPoint thing, mm-hmm. with all kinds of red and yellow and green on it, <laughs> percentages <laughs> here and there, and pie charts and bar charts and pie charts, and all that stuff, right? Or do you want to see working software? Do you want to see a working product? Do you want to be able to see how the customer is going to interact with your company and how they're going to do business and give you money? Right. I want B every freaking time. Absolutely. And, you know, I just think of this client that I've been working on in there, like everybody, right? They're updating their consumer websites to meet the new ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act standards. Uh-huh. You're a compliance person, and I've been in this situation. What is more important and more relevant to you? A business requirements document that has checkboxes that said you met these standards or the actual working website that shows you how you satisfy the standards? Every single time the compliance people wanted to see the website. Sure. Every single time. Time and that included the outside compliance experts. Okay. Also in Agile, your lowest level 
of government governance is the acceptance criteria on the user story. Right. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. That means you have governance, real, substantive, measurable, meaningful governance on every single user story your agile teams work on. Mm-hmm. You have nothing. There's no equivalent of that in the traditional world. No. There just isn't. That that has that level of actual meaning. I can measure this. I can touch it. I can see it. I can feel it. The customer right. can react to it. Nowhere near. Um, so when we talk about agile governance, that's what I'm really talking about with organizations. Get rid of status reports. Status reports of marketing material, <laughs> they, they almost are never fact-based, and as soon as you publish them, they're out of date. Right. And would you ever show a status report to your customers? No. No. Mm-mm. That's internal. Why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? <laughs> if you really are a customer-centric organization, what are you doing? The other thing is, would you ever show... And, that, you know, remember, I used to lead a compliance organization, a financial services organization. So mm-hmm. I literally had meetings with regulators in financial services, right? right. Would I ever show them a status report? I don't no. Think so. <laughs> <laughs> so why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? What I would show them is what we actually did. Right. This is what we're doing. You know, and, and they loved it. Yeah. Made their jobs easier. It was more meaningful. They had confidence in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. It, it's, it's totally different. And that's why I also say the other thing to remember is if you don't change your governance, so you keep doing status reports, you keep doing business requirements documents, you keep doing, you know, all those kind of things, TSPs, there's so many, right, mm-hmm. of those check-the-box documents, right? You keep doing that. Mm-hmm. everything you've invested in your Agile transformation will be great. You'll lose that investment. Oh, everything. Wow. Because human beings will always do what they're, what's measured. Yes. That's right. And what they're evaluated on. And so if your governance does not change, your organization will always revert to the old way of doing things. And you'll lose value. So one of the things I say to the C-suite, if you're not willing to change your governance, then let's not waste your money on doing this agile transformation. Because it is a waste of your money. And it's a waste of your talent. And it's a waste of everybody's time. Let's not just not do it. It's not worth it. Yeah, that's, you know, that's uh, good, if not, uh, you know, firm coaching. And let's kind of stay with that for a moment because, you know, You've told us before that we use agrarian-style 19th-century measurements and procedures for the 21st-century knowledge workers. So, and I think I know the answer, is sticking with the old governance just another example of that 19th-century way of working? Right. And it was was easier because you could measure, um, you know pounds of coal, you could measure bales of wheat, you could measure, you know, 
at how many cars came off the assembly line because every there there was no knowledge there, right? What we're doing in this new world of knowledge workers is the governance is about the knowledge that's right. being created. And is that knowledge being funneled in a way that adds value to the organization? And that value is determined by the customer response. Yes. Right? And, right. and in the stakeholder response in the case of regulators and, and compliance. Um, that cannot be measured the same way you measure coal or wheat or, you know, any of the traditional manufactured products. Right. Whale oil. <laughs> Whale oil. That's going way back. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, but it's right. And it, and it makes as much sense to apply um, that kind of governance to whale oil mm-hmm. and, um, you know, feather pens mm-hmm. to... Right. You know, LED lights and right. tablets, and and that and that juxtaposition should make everybody go, "Whoa, that doesn't make any sense at all." It doesn't. So stop, stop doing it. And I understand that's what so many of us are trained in. Um, that's even that's even how our public education, not just our public, our private education, is the same way. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a not even a nineteenth century model. It's being generous. Yeah. 19th century yeah. is actually more of a borderline 17th, 18th yeah. century industrial model. Um, and that's not the world we live in. We live in a, in a world of knowledge and knowledge workers, and, and, and we have knowledge industries are the dominant industries in the United States. And we need to change our leadership and our governance behaviors to accommodate that so that we can be successful. Amen. I, that's so well said, and I I love that you used the word juxtaposition. Um, that's uh, that's some good vocabulary right there. So. <laughs> but let's uh, let's stay let's stay inside the traditional organization. Talk but talk about rewards and recognition. If you're if you're in a company, and I used to be in one, that uses performance management, it's individual performance that matters. And even if even if you work in a place. That doesn't, that doesn't use performance management. management. They're still, They're still evaluating, evaluating individual visits individual thing. Agile's a team of accomplishments. accomplishments. So, so, again, the way people are rewarded would also have to be based on team outcomes, wouldn't they? Absolutely. And that's what we know. Um, is so different about the industrial model versus the knowledge model. Mm -hmm. In the industrial model, carrots and sticks work. Mm -hmm. The science, and it it doesn't matter who you're talking to, um, anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists, and economists have all studied this. Right. And they all came to the same conclusion. When you have rote work that's hands and feet that isn't about your brain, carrots and sticks work. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's not the world we live in. We yeah. live in a knowledge industry model, right? Right. And we know that actually the more you, the more the rewards are, they degrade performance in a knowledge 
model. Hmm. Let that sink in. It freaked economists out. It freaked them out. They didn't believe it. Yeah. When they saw this, studied it over and over again. They went to different countries. They went to different parts of the United States. They brought in sociologists, brought in psychologists. They brought in anthropologists. They brought in all these brilliant people. Mm-hmm. Exact same results over and over and over again. That's interesting. Because money degrades performance of knowledge workers. Does that mean we should pay them peanuts? No, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. What you do is you pay them enough that money is not a concern. Okay. Right? Right. And actually what they find is organizations where um, everybody has the equivalent pay. So if you had five people on a team and they all had five years' worth of experience, Mm -hmm. They all are paid the exact amount of same amount of money, mm-hmm. regardless if they're male, female, um, native born, not doesn't matter. That should all be taken out of the equation. What they find is everybody's performance is elevated. Huh. It in organizations where it's known, for instance, that women are paid less than men. Right. The entire team's performance is degraded. Men's performance degrades as well. Huh. Let that sink in. (laughs) Mm. Because you've got a team that needs to be successful. So what the men see is, oh, that person's, that team member's uh, is devalued. Mm -hmm. And that drags down the performance of the entire team. Because it degrades, remember, the the motivators for knowledge workers are performance, or sorry, purpose, autonomy, mastery. Mm -hmm. When we devalue team members... We undermine purpose. Yeah, that's... For everybody. Yeah, and, you know, you you had asked asked me to let it sink in, and um, it's taken a while. <laughs> but, right. But changing, you know, the way the rewards are structured, that is another step out of the past and into the present, or at least maybe the 90s. Right, and so what we look at is team-based rewards and recognition. We look at the other thing is, and those are much more successful. So the entire team is rewarded um, for accomplishments. They are they are short. So the traditional model is you have to work, you have to work an entire year, uh-huh. then you have to wait a few months before you get your bonus. That's right. right. Yep. That doesn't work in the knowledge model. That degrades performance. The longer people have to wait for the reward, mm-hmm. the less value becomes, and it actually degrades performance over time. Um, so, what you want to do is usually most most agile companies go to quarterly rewards mm-hmm. and recognition. The rewards and recognition should not always be money. Right. It should be actually spending quality time with people. Oh. So the most successful organizations, um, they do quarterly outings. Mm -hmm. Um, They'll do monthly um, happy hours and social events. Mm -hmm. Um, One of my clients, what we did is one day a week, every week, the workday ended early, and we had a happy hour in the office. Oh, fun. Okay. And everybody contributed to the company bought non-alcoholic beverages. Mm-hmm. Anybody wanted alcoholic, brought it in to share. 
And it was pure social time. And it was the entire agile release train in this particular case that would socialize together. Because sometimes the different teams on the train don't get to spend time with each other. I'll bet that's right. But you're still working towards a common purpose and a common goal. Mm-hmm. And it's very substantive recognition from the executives how important it is for this these team of teams to work together and be successful together. So we, we got to kind of take ourselves outside of this, throw money at it, mm-hmm. <laughs> perspective. Yeah. Or if it isn't working, we automatically fire people. Because that's the other thing, the stick part of carrots and sticks is part of the, the why it degrades performance. Because if people are afraid that if they screw up, they're going to be fired, mm-hmm. they don't take chances, no, that's right. back to the governance, they won't tell you when there's a problem, mm-hmm. right? When you not want to find out there's a problem, when your customer finds it. Oh, yeah. What happens if people are afraid to raise issues or problems um, because you have a carrot and sticks environment, they're not going to tell you who's going to wind up telling you, your customer. That's right. Absolute wrong time. You want your employees to feel safe and comfortable to raise mistakes. So one of the things that often, almost always, you will see in a, in a true agile culture, mm-hmm. people will celebrate failures and mistakes. That's... Because people need to feel safe to take risks, to screw up, and to learn. And one of the things that happens with that culture, too, and this is so tied to rewards and recognition, is saying that there is no such thing as a failure or mistake or we work mm-hmm. if we learn from it. Yeah. that's The only time it doesn't have value is if we don't stop and learn from it. But if we learn from it, that's not really a failure. It's not really rework, et cetera. Right? All those, all those naughty words <laughs> right. that people aren't Bad. supposed to say in the workplace, right? But if we learn from it, then it really is reward, and the person who brings it up and teaches us gets recognized. I that, hope your mind was just blown. Well, <laughs> it's like the fourth time this podcast, my mind was blown. Um. <laughs> I mean, but think about it. Who doesn't want to work in that environment? Especially as a knowledge worker, you're paid for your brain. You know you're not perfect. Sure. Who wants the stress of showing up to work every day trying to be perfect? Yeah, it's it's. Ugh, but it's that's awful. what we do to our knowledge workers every day. Yeah, and, and and then we wonder why we don't get their best best work. Well, that's why because we're putting them in an unrealistic. Um, situation, we're setting them up for failure. Let's turn around our rewards and recognition so that we set them up for success. Yeah, and what you described was, um, you know, not really intuitive, celebrating failure, but the way it's used in the organization as a learning tool, that's just downright enlightened. And Well, we look at, and we've known this back to Drucker, Darn that Peter Drucker, way too ahead of his time, because so much of what he talked about in the 50s and the 60s, -hmm. people are just now getting, which I, it's hilarious, Um, and and I hope he's, you know, seeing this and just having a good chuckle, but that darn Peter Drucker, um, you know, he he talked about a lot of this back in the 50s and 60s, um, about how the most innovative companies, and one of the ones that he highlighted was 3M. Uh-huh. 3M has in, has had internal incubators since the 50s, uh-huh. 
where any employee can bring up an idea and say, what do you think? Uh-huh. And they may or may not invest in it. And that's how come they have such a plethora of products and services that they create. But they also have had a recognition that there is no such thing as failure. Right. And their favorite story for a very long time has been post-it notes. The guy who invented <laughs> the glue for post-it notes was trying to invent, which they later did, a super in- I- adhesive. Right. That that had a better than super glue bond. Uh-huh. Okay, the exact opposite of right. what super glue. <laughs> I mean, the post-it note adhesive is right. Right. <laughs> the yeah. exact opposite. So not a failure, right? They learned a lot from it, and over time, it's 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 this huge part of their company. It's one of the biggest branches of their company. Is their post-it note. Um, you know, department and all the products that they have from Post-it Notes, right. and that's I, and I and I love that story. I love the way 3M talks about it. It's the way I just talked about it to you. There's no such thing as a failure as long as you learn from it. That's that's such a great example of how that concept um, becomes a reality. And right. so, with the time we've got left, Ren, and and knowing my extreme views on on workplace behavior in the face of change, <laughs> is it just a miracle that anybody can manage to change over to Agile, or is it just that effective of a methodology, or are those who are leading the transformation, are they just that strong of leaders? The reason why, I really believe the reason why um, Agile has been not only catching on, but growing almost exponentially in the last seven, eight years mm-hmm. is because we have my generation the generation after me coming into the workplace. And as soon as we work in an agile environment, we don't want to work anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Right. Because like we talked about, we have a sense of purpose to our work, which is very important. Paycheck is not purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, for anyone born after 1963, and I would argue even people born before that. Right. Um, I wasn't born in 1963. I was born after that. But, um, you know, it's just just a generational shift happened there. Right. Right? Right, absolutely. And so we look for, in our work, more than a paycheck. We want purpose. But we also are a fast-growing a uh, number of introverts. Uh-huh. So we want some autonomy. Right. But we want autonomy in the in the sense of not that I work completely by myself in my own little hovel and I don't want to talk to you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because we're very collaborative. What we want is the fewest number of social interactions as possible. And that's really how we came to the size of the Agile teams. It's science, folks. It's not mm. <laughs> like we picked numbers out of a hat right. and the numbers happen to be five and nine. No, <laughs> it's <laughs> science. It's a, this group of people. What's the right, the, the, the smallest team number of people you can bring together for them to be successful and what's the largest? Mm-hmm. Five and nine. You know, and they want mastery. They want to be really good at what they do and feel really good about what they do. Uh Um, And these are all things that the Agile 
methodologies, because there's multiples, right. Scrum, Save, Kanban, Dad, etc., Lean, they're designed for these groups of people to help them be as successful as possible in the work that they do, to right. feel passionate about their work, and to really deliver a lot of value from their work. Mm-hmm. And so when, when these groups of people get into these environments, they love it because they're successful and they're happy. Right. Well, we've learned this week that knowledge, even on the mind-blowing scale, is, is definitely power. Um, the information in this week's podcast is so important for those of you who are now or about to be making the change to an agile organization or agile transformation. Knowing the things that are going to cause you grief up front is really a gift. And similarly, knowing the things that will make you more successful are as well. And it's a reason, I think, to be grateful that um, the Guardian is looking out for you. So be sure to be here next week for another edition of the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. And don't forget to visit her website at www.renmelberg.com.